I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network, presented by Interact. COVID is in many ways dragging the future into the present, and work is no different. How we work, where we work, who's essential, and the skills needed to be successful are rapidly changing. Today, I'm joined by Pedro Barada to discuss the skills that will be needed in the labor market transformed by COVID, automation, and other factors. Pedro is the executive director of the Future Skills Center, Known for his strategic leadership, an active voice on social policy, and a commitment to community building, Pedro's career and extensive volunteer work in the nonprofit sector spans two decades. As the executive director of the Future Skills Center, Pedro works with the key project partners to realize the center's mandate and objectives, to build a network of key partners and stakeholders, lead and invest in cutting-edge research, test and evaluate innovative projects, and ensure that knowledge is shared and acted upon. Thank you for joining me, Pedro. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Jody. Okay, so what skills trends are being accelerated by this pandemic, or is it steady as she goes? Uh, I think when we, uh, if if we're going to think about skills in this rapidly accelerated context that we're in, um, I think we need to think about both what and how. Um, so the what. Uh, you know, it starts with uh, what we all know, which is that uh, digital digital competencies are going to be uh, pervasive and, in fact, are becoming essential in terms of how we work with each other. Uh, we always knew that um, technology and, uh, and digital skills uh, and that level of high proficiency and comfort uh, we're going to be um, uh, we're going to be eventually embedded into uh, most occupations, into most industries, and we're going to, in many ways, revolutionize uh, or continue to revolutionize our economy. And what we've seen is uh, that social distancing uh, has just um, uh, sped that process up, and and we're seeing that even though the answers may not be immediate and, um, and, and we just have to be comfortable in, in the reality that we are in a period of, of great transition, uh, that even though those answers are not immediate, that the focus really needs to be to ensure that we are upskilling on the digital side. Um, I think alongside with that, uh, there's been a, um, uh, a, real, uh, a real recognition that social and emotional skills are going to be kind of like the third leg of the stool when it comes to a skills agenda moving forward, right? So um, on uh, the, the the first leg is sort of like the foundational skills that we have traditionally thought of as, uh, you know, reading and or literacy um, uh, in the traditional sense and now is expanded to digital literacy and, and comfort. There's, of course, the second leg of the stool, which are uh, work-specific skills or industry-specific skills that apply to your specific job. But then there's this third leg of the stool. Um, we, uh, we used to call it soft skills, right? Um, and uh, there's just been a real acceleration in understanding um, that it's not really about soft skills. It's about social and emotional skills uh, that are really grounded in things like resilience uh, and being able to uh, just feel confident about uh, about change and uh, um, and wrapping your arms around that change and learning from your experiences and welcoming the fact that uh, that transitions in your career and transitions in your job, constant learning are going to be a reality. Um, and that's a shift for, for a lot of us. Uh, it's things like global competencies too and just the reality that um, we're, uh, we're going to be living in Increasingly diverse, uh, di diverse environments in terms of our of our work life, 
be it uh, just because, uh, you know, cross-functional teams, collaboration, uh, you know, even just the reality that these digital platforms are probably going to really diversify um, who we work with on a daily basis. It's going to be um, uh, just, you know, the, the state or the regional barriers, proximity barriers are going to be broken. And the ability to, you know, sort of uh, uh, be confident in your skills and what you bring to the table, but also be able to integrate the skills of others, the perspectives of others, the diversity of others. Uh, that's going to be really, really key. So that's the, um, that's sort of the, the what skills are, are going to be um, overarching um, uh, and necessary as we move forward. And, and then I think there's the how. And, um, and the how is really at the core of the work of the Future Skills Center. Um, and, uh, and it's a recognition that right now, um, some people get access to really good skills development and education, often because they can pay for it or because um, uh, they, they, work, uh, uh, they, they work, uh, their employer provides them with good training. Some people get okay training, uh, and often those are people who are unemployed and are receiving uh, training programs uh, uh, that are about labor market activation. Um, but most people get no training at all. <laughs> and, uh, and what we are trying to figure out is how we we can expand access to the good kind of training. We can make the training that sometimes is a little bit too generic better and more responsive to the needs of workers and employers. And how can we create that third door, right? That third pillar around um, ensuring that everybody, no matter if they're unemployed, looking to move up in their career, looking to shift careers, looking to work less and do more things than what they love, that everybody has a place to turn to that will actually be responsive to their needs. And, and that how piece, I think, is going to be really key moving forward. So um, there, there was uh, an Enveronix uh, study that, that was uh, released that um, uh, the Future Skills Center uh, partnered with. And I think it was, uh, you know, talking about an optimism um, around, you know, uh, an ability to bounce back from these hard times and just listening to you speak to, you know, sort of this three-legged stool and, um, at, you know, on the one hand, but then sort of limited opportunities for training um, and, you know, skills development and education. Um, what, what, you know, how do we, how do we square that circle? You know, it's interesting that there's this optimism, but it's not, it's not because necessarily there, there's a clear pathway to, uh, you know, getting back to employment or, you know, uh, repositioning oneself for success. Yeah, I think the, uh, that, that's, a, that's a great observation. And my reflection back uh, to you is that I think the, cr the critical ingredient there is hope. And uh, as long as long as there's hope, uh, and as long as we can, as long as we can actually ground and capitalize and anchor that hope in real action, uh, we can keep moving forward. I was, um, I have to tell you, I was really heartened to read those results at a time when, um, you know, the whole economy was coming almost to a halt, when we were seeing um, EI applications at a, at a level that I've never seen in my lifetime, and when there was just so much uncertainty and desperation. And as I looked at the draft of the Enveronics report, um, uh, I, w I went to the the that optimism and the fact that the optimism was really grounded on two things. Um, 
So at the same time, the Canadians were saying, I am really unsure about my my job future and my uh, and and my career. And by the way, they were saying that because our our survey was in the field before the pandemic really hit. Um, we just happened to be in the field asking these questions before, and even before the pandemic hit, half of the respondents were not feeling great about their job security. It got worse after. But what kept them grounded and optimistic were two things. One was trust in each other, trust in their community and their neighbors. There's a sense of social cohesion. And secondly, a real belief that government was going to be there to catch them and not let them fall through the cracks. And this was before the announcement of CERB, before many of the uh, um, uh, uh, actions that the government took in order to really backstop uh, the um, uh, uh Households and, and and businesses, and ensure that, um, uh, that 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 we all had a foundation to stand on. So I was very heartened by that because uh, it showed that Canadians actually trust government. And you know, the Edelman survey actually came out that same week as our report, and it re it reinforced the same thing. Alongside with that, we also asked uh, we also asked in that survey, what are the skills that you think are going to be critical moving forward, and um, like, I, I was a little bit surprised, but really shouldn't have been surprised that uh, top of the list for most Canadians was a, just a um, pointing to, to social and emotional skills and and uh, and just being resilient and agile and flexible and being able to to ride through these changes um, in a way where where you feel more confident. So um, so that's the hope. And Canadians are sort of pointing to where to what they need more of in terms of training. Uh, it's now our job to make sure that as we develop an economic recovery strategy uh, focused on industries and sectors and regions, um, that right, right on the heels of that, we're thinking about the pipeline of skills and how it is that we can extend that to more and more Canadians. And that's going to be no easy task. But then again, none of this is going to be an easy task. But it's also not an entire mystery. And, uh, and I think we have an opportunity to move forward. So if phase one then was, you know, um, you know, income relief, right? Uh, so phase two then, you know, to kind of layer on top, you know, given the high unemployment numbers, um, you know, looks at skills training. Who best delivers that training or is it also kind of a three-legged stool or, or some, <laughs> some numeric, <laughs> some other metaphor of furniture? <laughs> Uh, I, I I don't think that this uh, this is um, this is a, a one size fits all kind of solution, and uh, and I think that uh, um, it's going to take certainly employers um, really you know um, coming to understand uh, co invest and co create more employer based training. It's going to take that for sure. Uh, like right now, only fifty percent of Canadians have access to or have had access to any training through their workplace over the over the past five years. Uh, most Canadians who had that access uh, say that it, it was actually helpful and useful and that the most useful training that they found was actually peer learning and having the opportunity to learn from their colleagues and to learn on the job. So um, I think we, um, we have an opportunity now to expand that um, we are, uh, you know, I've been on on the Zoom uh, uh, road, <laughs> talking talking to a talking to a lot of industry and sector sec uh, and and sector 
uh, representatives and uh, and councils and roundtables. Um, and they are not sitting on their hands. They they recognize that there's there there are shifts happening. In some sectors, there there are shifts around mitigating some of the losses and being in a state of preparedness to start to retrain and upskill. Uh, in other sectors, uh, you know the opportunities are beginning to emerge, and it's uh, and there are going to be talent gaps. And so employers are beginning to identify what is it that we need to do. How is it that we can be part of the solution? in terms of creating that pipeline for talent. And it's a conversation uh, that, frankly, um, uh, employers have, uh, uh, you know, have had the, the benefit and luxury, especially in the past few years, of not always having to worry about, right? Because it was, um, <laughs> it was really a buyer's market in, in, terms of, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of employment. Like we are the, Canada is the highest educated uh, uh, working, has the highest educated working age population in the, in the OECD. Like we have a pretty highly skilled workforce already, uh, but now uh, we need to capitalize on moving forward. So employers are going to be key. Uh, of course, they're not going to do it alone. Uh, partnerships with um, post-secondary education uh, are going to be critical. We've always we've been having this long-standing discussion about how colleges and universities and polytechniques um, uh, need to become more, uh, you know, oriented to um, to the world outside of their walls, uh, metaphorically speaking, and that partnerships with employers that put um, both employers and job seekers at the center in terms of thinking about skills, uh, we're already seeing that accelerate in terms of um, uh, emerging emerging partnerships. I also, you know, uh, community based organizations are are going to continue to be absolutely key. Uh, because when you look at the 50% of workers who don't get empl- who don't get any kind of training, um, many of them actually live in communities that wouldn't even know where to turn to. Um, uh, many of them are newcomers, young people. Uh, many populations that don't have the same kind of social capital, uh, the same knowledge, the same institutional knowledge about where to turn to, don't have the networks to be able to get plugged in. And community-based and grassroots organizations are going to be absolutely crucial in being connectors and being outreachers and bringing people who are otherwise going to continue to be on the outside in, providing them with some baseline training and skills, and then channeling them to opportunities that are going to emerge. So, Jody, I would say that like, like there's no one entity that um, that is uh, that is going to solve solve all of this for all of us. But it is going to have to be um, everybody stepping up and seeing themselves as part of an, integ- an, an integrated solution. Do you think there's some policy levers that that, that even if you know um, government isn't the sole source of the solution, and and I certainly appreciate that, and that uh, and it's I think that's really important to understand that there's you know whether it's employers or post secondary. Uh, educational institutions, you know, that, that, that there's a lot of players that, that can come together to make this work. But, but is there um, a policy lever that only government can pull to kind of support the whole of effort? Uh, for sure. And I, uh, I have to start with, um, uh, I have to start with just the concept of that you, you, you can't learn if you're hungry or if you don't have a roof over your head. Or if you don't feel um, if you don't feel confident enough um, to take that step in terms of taking some some time um, to to build your skills, and I think you know the, uh, the 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 public policy levers around 
income security, affordable housing, afford, uh, quality, affordable childcare. Um, I mean, those have to be in place for any kind of skills agenda to be effective. Uh, a skills agenda on its own is uh, is is necessary, but but it's not but it but it but it's not going to be um, uh, efficient if those other levers are not in place. So, um, with that in mind, um, you know the uh, public policy levers the government currently has a, a, at its disposal include um, many training dollars uh, that uh, that go to a variety of players, including post secondary education. Um, uh, through the provincial and territorial governments. Um, also, those dollars are used for community-based training, and those will continue to be key. Uh, I think that there's like there's a real question around how it is that in these times we actually take um, take a step back, uh, look at what we're doing in terms of those investments, ask questions about how effective they are, uh, and and how effective they're going to be. And how is it that we can begin to weave together uh, some of the um, uh, um, some of these investments uh, and think about an agenda for learning, an agenda for skills development, for career counseling and advice uh, that is more outcome oriented, that puts um, uh, you know the pathway between a worker and an employer at the center, um, and and is driven with greater purpose. So there's that. I think there you know there's also an opportunity to take a step back on things like the Canada Training Benefit, which was um, uh, uh, a new initiative brought in by the federal government uh, with, um, uh, you know, with with the purpose in mind uh, to provide Canadians with a bit of, you know, uh, um, a learning wallet that they could use uh, that would be customizable to their needs um, and that they could use to, um, uh, to um, you know, to... to to go out and and get the training that makes sense for them. Um, very much a as the program starting, right? It's a relatively small program right now. Um, it's uh, the, the eligibility for it is still being determined, and I think that as we move into this new reality where we want to provide more and more people with opportunities to get training, maybe we have uh, the chance to actually think about the the Canada training benefit as perhaps a bigger solution that cuts across. Um, uh, that cuts across various populations with with various needs, with um, uh, working in in a variety of settings, and uh, and can be an enabler for um, uh, for for uh, you know retraining, upskilling, reskilling, redeploying to to other sectors. Um, so uh, that is the kind of tool that um, that in this environment, when we're trying to be creative, when we're when we're trying to think about uh, things from a new perspective, could be really helpful. So um, even as, you know, economies across Canada reopen at their own pace, um, physical distancing is still, um, you know, considered our, you know, best defense against um, this novel coronavirus. So um, it, it, it has me wondering, you know, are there some you know, skills training programs that can be delivered online? Are there some that just aren't conducive? Is the access to um, the required, you know, infrastructure, you know, data plans and, and the right technology, um, is that uh, uh, just not available enough to, to make an online push successful enough 
or is it again just sort of one piece of a larger puzzle? I think it's fair to say that um, uh, that uh, everybody in skills development and education knows that that's the direction that we need to move in. I mean, even just think about what's going to happen with the fall term around universities and colleges, and that it's like there's already um, <laughs> there's already a, a context where. Uh, learning and education is going to be delivered online and just the level of transformation and the level of wide-scale adoption that's going to have to happen, not just from a technology point of view, but even from a get your trainers trained, right? Get the professors and the sessional instructors uh, all ready to go for the fall term in terms of delivering a um, a digital first experience. Uh, That's some heavy lifting, uh, but um, that's going to be the work over the summer. Um, we fund, uh, we partner with um, a whole variety of, uh, of partners across the country, both in the remote north and in the south, uh, that were, you know, engaged in trying to find innovation about how we reskill and upskill uh, uh, different kinds of populations. And many of those projects uh, that you know were sort of based on a, a, a bricks and mortar kind of model, or we're even based on uh, outdoor learning kind of model, they're all having to rethink uh, what uh, what the next stage of, of the experimentation is going to be. And um, uh, that's, that's proving to be, you know, a necessary but not very easy transition for everybody. Creating those, creating those kind of platforms, investing in those kind of platforms is exactly um, uh, the, the kind of work that we are trying to, um, uh, to help advance. We just, for example, we, we just, uh, we just launched a partnership with the hospitality sector, uh, in Ontario, um, with, uh, uh with an opening to a pan Canadian, uh, model. Um, and of course the hospitality sector has been maybe the hardest hit sector, uh, in the economy. And, uh, for many, there are many displaced workers that uh, that we're now going to be reaching out to, um, skills mapping, what assets they bring to the table, um, creating uh, a digital platform uh, that allows for both uh, displaced workers, existing workers, as well as uh, employers, both big and small, to have a place to go to, to just um, follow follow the conversation, be part of the conversation, and as a next step then, use that platform as a way to uh, to deliver training um, and um, uh, and and to, and to learn about what works and what doesn't in those environments, I think that that kind of approach is an approach that um, all other sectors are moving toward, and we just um, I think investing in that. Speaking of public policy levers, uh, mm-hmm. is is a is a really really is a really smart move uh, because everybody knows what needs to happen. It's just how is it that we get there fast. And, um, and at scale and ensuring uh, that we're also learning and sharing from each other. And also thinking about that city-rural divide, right? Um, you know, I was um, uh, listening to, to someone speak and, you know, they were talking uh, about, you know, uh, retooling becoming the norm, but that, you know, city jobs are very different than rural jobs. And yet, you know, there's disruption happening across the country. It's not just a, a, a city challenge. Um, so, 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 you know, it causes me to think that some form of, of online uh, technology um, 
has to has to be part part of the solution, or we'll just have two unevenly distributed um, uh, impact. Yeah, I, uh, for sure, and uh, and and even in that setting, you could see huge opportunities as well as pretty significant challenges. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, I think it's fair to say that Canada has been on uh, on the leading edge of advancing uh, ag tech and uh, and bringing in new technologies uh, to really push our agriculture sector forward. Um, and I think that in 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 this emerging environment, um, where of course um, food production is going to continue to be both a uh, a matter of national security, but as well as a uh, um, uh, a great asset for for continuing trade and exports. Uh, the um, the opportunity to really continue to integrate advanced technology and how we do agriculture is uh, is an, is like it's that's a that's a bet worth putting money on, right? And uh, and we have to continue to advance that. And then I mean, in terms of significant challenges. I was uh, speaking with a, a colleague of mine um, who lives in Manitoba on a First Nation, and he was just reminding me that uh, all of this talk about digital everything and going online, that's fine, for, for especially for those of us in the South. But the further up you go, the fewer fiber optic cables there are. And, um, and there, are, there are real issues around access, right, and broadband and cost. And um, especially when you get to uh, to the remote north, right, uh, to the territories, um, uh, that's there's going to be a there's going to be an equity challenge here, right? And uh, and if we're going to have a recovery that works for everybody, how is it that we begin to think about investments there? Um, I really appreciated your earlier comments. You know, from from a policy point of view, you know, foundationally, you know, you you can't be hungry. You need some level, uh, some basic level of of income support that gives you shelter um, and food. And as as we're coming to understand, particularly in this period, uh, these things are also fundamental to health, which is also you know obviously an important. Um, precondition to, to being ready to to learn and to train. Um, so, you know, kind of continuing that that thought um, and that focus, you know, I was uh, I was reading um, the the report on the impact of automation. So long before COVID, automation was obviously uh, having a big impact on uh, on what jobs were available and what what jobs were were, were going to be. Um, retired, if you will. And, you know, like COVID log scales, you know, there are people behind each number uh, on that chart. And um, and who is at risk uh, is not equitably distributed. Um, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, you know, how the impact of, of automation um, is hitting different communities um, unevenly. It's been interesting that in doing, uh, you know, various media interviews on on how work is changing and the future of work so much of the conversations tend to center on you know the sort of the archetypal white collar worker that works in an office environment um, and you know that tends to dominate any conversation about you know going back to work you can't help but note um, that for many many people they're not working from home right now <laughs> they are actually uh, working pretty hard already and uh, and exposing themselves to risk. Uh, 
uh, and that not everybody who um, who is going back to work is going to go into an office environment. And uh, and unfortunately, those experiences uh, tend to be the ones that we don't talk about enough. So when we think about uh, traditional backbone industries like manufacturing, for example, automation is going to obviously have a huge impact on uh, on on those industries and is going to create um, some displacement. The uh, part of the question is that we know that that displacement is going to be inevitable. Uh, it's how we think about how we create pathways for people who are going to be displaced in those sectors who have good foundational skills and how we can move them to, uh, to other opportunities. It's also true and and um, uh, that uh, the risks of automation are going to impact parts of people's jobs, uh, but that the, the the pervasive impact, the impact is not going to be as pervasive as sometimes um, as sometimes we believe. Uh, it's uh, I think the research shows that automation and uh, and other new technologies, uh, yes, they, they they may replace parts of your job, but there are uh, many many other parts of the job that will continue to require humans to actually perform them. Um, so I, I think some perspective on that will uh, uh, will be key, and uh, and especially in this environment as well, where everything is up in the air, and where we. Um, uh, 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 where even manufacturing itself might be something that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see a bit of a return uh, just because of issues of you know, national security and, um, and how that's going to change the, the, the global supply chain. Um, I think some perspective will be, will be key. Yeah, and you know, I was reading um, uh, in terms of some of the um, impacts um, of automation, when you look at the industries, they tend to um, uh, have higher numbers of Indigenous employment, female employment, youth employment, visible minority employment. Um, you know, people have been talking about a, a she session. I think, you know, um, when we when when we think um, about you know the people, kind of you know who 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 we're we're trying to support. I think it's. You know, it, it, it's just such a, an important um, aspect of it when you're thinking about who you're trying to lift up to, to understand that um, COVID is not a great equalizer, right? It's it's kind of it's it's really the opposite of that. That that, that those who are vulnerable are are as vulnerable to COVID, and you know, and and some trends, you know, like like automation um, as well. And you know, how can policy um, be sensitive to that in order to amplify its effectiveness. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know if you if, if you have any uh, thoughts to to share on that. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, you know, people like Armenia Lesian have um, uh, have really made a, a that important point around how this economic slowdown or this economic transition is going to be very different from uh, from other slowdowns that we've experienced. Uh, in that the social distancing and health aspect of um, that's really driving the slowdown uh, is impacting industries uh, like hospitality um, and services industry like retail um, in um, uh, and not so much industries like construction and manufacturing um, as we experienced in past recessions which tend to be more male dominated um, uh, industries in the past, in terms of the policy lever levers for recovery, 
um, if uh, if the issue was really around, um, you know, how is it that we get uh, new construction workers and manufacturing um, back online? An agenda that included that that includes large infrastructure spending, of course, makes a lot of sense, right? But this is a bit different. We we probably still need that kind of infrastructure stimulus. But this is a bit different because now we have sectors like hospitality, like the services industry, um, like retail, uh, where the solution coming back is not going to be the same as in as in previous economic slowdowns. And levers like affordable childcare, which we may not have thought of, um, you know, uh, back in 2008 or back in the early 90s, uh, Maybe we didn't think of, though, of about those as integral in terms of an economic recovery. We should have, but we didn't. This time, it's staring us in the face, right? Because the, the greatest impact in terms of job losses are going to be on women and newcomers and racialized populations and those who are younger. And um, unless we start to really craft an economic recovery strategy that, that, that ensures that those groups are included, we're just going to fall further behind. Um, there's been a there's been a, a trend after every economic recovery that even as the sort of the the overall indicators started to look good again, um, underneath that the the, the continued uh, uh, continued growing gap uh, uh, was also a factor, right? So especially especially on income and wealth. Um, so here we are again, right? Another fork on the road. Um, we like we have to believe, and and we will get through this. We will get to a recovery. Things will get back to a new normal, whatever that looks like. But it will happen. But in the process, can we can we make some policy decisions that are going to ensure that we're not going to grow further apart, and that the recovery isn't just for a few people, while leaving a whole um, a whole bunch of populations behind? We know who they are. We know we know um, it's there. There has to be a gender uh, uh, dimension to this. We have to help those with least experience in the labor market, newcomers and young people. Uh, we have to ensure that traditional systemic barriers uh, facing indigenous people, people with disabilities, people facing mental health challenges, that those are also addressed. Um, and um, I hope that as we um, as we craft these strategies, and as important as it is for us to focus on sectors and industries that we also take into account the need for um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, lens through everything that we do. Before I let you go, I noticed that the center um, has launched an innovation challenge around shockproofing the future of work. Uh, I just wanted to give you a couple moments to, to talk about that and, uh, and what we can look forward to um, coming out of that challenge and where we can find the results. Uh, great. So uh, we know that uh, we're uh, we're about to see a shift um, uh, across industries and regions uh, to to you know to move from the um, the urgent response to really starting to think about uh, the economic recovery and uh, and skills are going to be key to that. So we want to we want to make sure that we create the space for organizations to try to anticipate how uh, how we can build a skills and training uh, component to um, how we're thinking about uh, the economic recovery. Uh, we started out with the hospitality sector um, and, uh, uh, and we're already investing within hospitality in, in just being in a state of readiness uh, to both uh, reach out to displaced workers, create the digital platform uh, that will allow people to link and connect and then um, rapidly uh, 
prototype and test uh, um, uh, approaches to training and skills development to figure out what works and what doesn't as the fog lifts on, on what the future is going to be. Uh, that's going to be, uh, I, I think, a trend right through um, uh, you know, aviation and technology and biotech and retail and construction and transportation. Um, all of these sectors are going to be going through the same transition and they all need to start thinking about how do you deliver skills in, in this new environment uh, and recognizing that it's going to be a little bit different in each of these sectors uh, and industries um, and also in regions. Uh, we are um, we're really opening ourselves up to collaborations and partnerships that want to test that, that want to do it fast uh, with a view to uh, showing what, uh, what the future needs to look like. Um, and of course, embedded through all of that is, um, is also ensuring that in anything that we do, uh, we're, um, uh, we're, we have a lens around diversity, inclusion and equity to make sure that, uh, that these opportunities are extended to everybody. Pedro, thank you so much for your time. You mentioned hope and trust earlier in our discussion, and I just want to thank you for all of the research that you and the center are moving forward and uh, the innovative collaborations and the equity lens that, that you bring to uh, the future of work. I think that is uh, the best way to respect and honor uh, the trust uh, that uh, Canadians are placing uh, in all of us during this time. Thank you. Thank you, Jody, and I want to thank you as well for, uh, for for you taking the time to put these programs together at these times when we all got our head down and, and we're just continuing to try to do the work, um, trying to make sense of, uh, of like what is the work that we're doing and where it's going and having spaces to have this conversation is really important. So I want to thank you for, for being such an important part of uh, uh, the solution. Wow. Thanks so much. Take care, Pedro. Bye, Jody.